welcome to this podcast looking at the new global minimum tax known as Pillar 2 and how this is impacting structured finance transactions. My name is Bryn Rajatharai and I'm a Knowledge Counsel in the a Tax team focusing on international tax. I'm delighted to have tax partners Chris Harris and Charles York and Esther Lemon join me for this discussion. Welcome. Esther, could you kick us off by giving us a quick recap on Pillar 2 for listeners who might not be so familiar with it? What is it and how does it work? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much, Bryn. And Pillar 2, it's an international concept that's come out of the OECD. And what it seeks to do is to impose a minimum 15% effective corporation tax rate on the profits of multinational groups of companies, or at least those that generate annual revenues in excess of the 750 million euro threshold. Now, tax authorities can impose what's known as a domestic top-up tax on group entities that are located in their own jurisdiction, where the effective tax rate of those entities is less than the 15%. And this gives jurisdictions a chance to fix the issue themselves in the first instance. Otherwise, the ultimate parent of the group or the top entity in the group that's in a jurisdiction that has implemented Pillarty will be required to pay a top-up tax in its own jurisdiction to top up the effective tax rate of all of its group members to 15%. And there are also backup rules, which mean that even if the jurisdiction of the parent entity hasn't introduced Pillarty, then other jurisdictions can ultimately collect the top-up tax instead. And Charles, why is this a concern for structured finance vehicles? Do they ever have revenues of over 750 million euro? Uh, no, I think that's very unlikely, Bryn, uh, in terms of the uh, SPV itself. So when you're talking about structured finance, you're commonly talking about a, a company in a jurisdiction like Ireland, say. Um, and that entity itself, I think it's very unlikely it would have revenues of that order. Um, but the important point is that this tested by reference to the consolidated group and consolidation means consolidation under uh, financial reporting standards. So the issue here tends to be that you just do not know who is going to consolidate the vehicle without doing due diligence. Therefore, you don't know the size of the consolidated financial group that the SPV might be a member of. Now, this means that whenever we're working on um, structured finance transactions, one of the most important questions at the beginning tends to be, will the vehicle be consolidated or not? You might think intuitively not, because um, vehicles used for structured finance transactions are usually orphans, so the share capital will be held by a, a trustee for some charitable or other purpose. But actually, that's not what drives consolidation from an accounting perspective. Consolidation tends to be driven by one control, so the ability to direct the affairs of the SPV, and two, an exposure to the equity returns of the SPV. Now, in practice, that means anyone holding a junior tranche of securities issued by the SPV could consolidate. That might be the retention holder, sponsor, asset manager, or third-party equity, or originating bank. So there's lots to think about when trying to think about who might consolidate the vehicle. Thanks, Charles. And Esther, why is this a problem? What are some of the key consequences for financing structures of coming within Pillar 2? Well, there are a couple of main potential consequences for structured finance transactions. Um, if the SPV's effective tax rate is less than 15%, then it can itself be primarily liable to the top-up tax, or it might be liable for top-up taxes of other group members. And this can have commercial repercussions in the context of structured finance transactions, because 
these transactions are generally undertaken on a limited recourse basis with SPVs being set up as bankruptcy remote entities. And for that reason, any unexpected tax claim by a tax authority against the SPV would be problematic. Chris, could you tell us a bit about what issues this was causing in practice? Yeah, so in the UK, these um, securitization vehicles are subject to a bespoke tax regime, which basically means they're shielded from tax other than corporation tax and a very small cash profit, which is usually just a few thousand pounds a year. An unintended consequence of Pillar 2 is that where these vehicles are consolidated for accounting purposes, they'll actually be subject to tax on their accounting profits, not the cash profit. And this can result in large unfunded tax liabilities. An example would be where hedging arrangements have been entered into by the vehicle, and these are subject to fair market value accounting, with the result that large accounting profits are recognised in the vehicle's accounts. The tax these profits could be very significant, and it could impact the ability of the securitization vehicle to service its debt, resulting in the securitization transaction being economically inviolable. In addition to that, there's no grandfathering under Pillar 2 for existing deals, so the rules could potentially have affected every live securitization transaction. This could have meant that some financial institutions would no longer be able to raise finance through securitizations, and in some cases, there's a fear they could even go insolvent. This was a really big issue for the market, and so we, together with other leading law firms in the area, and the big four accounting firms, raised this with HMRC and the Treasury. And how did those discussions go? Well, one of the issues is that HMRC had to stick very closely to the OST's model rules, so they were very limited in terms of the options available to them to help us resolve the issue. Initially, we tried to fit securitization SVVs into one of the existing exemptions from the Pillar 2 rules, but we realised this was simply not possible. And in the end, it was agreed with HMRC and the Treasury that the only solution would be to treat securitization vehicles as excluded from the scope of the Pillar 2 rules altogether, and simply treated as deconsolidated entities, even if for accounting purposes they are members of a consolidated group. These changes were announced in the autumn statement in November, and included in the finance bill that is currently making its way through Parliament. Thanks, Chris. Esther, obviously it's a positive sign that HMRC were willing to work with you to find a solution. Are you happy with where we've ended up in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once we'd identified the significance of the issue for the UK securitisation market, HMRC and HM Treasury were really helpful in working with us to find a solution. And um, as Chris has explained, the way that the UK securitization tax regime works is that UK securitization SPVs are taxed on their net cash profit without any reference to their accounts. And so it was really clear to us early on in discussions that any solution on Pillar 2 couldn't be based on the accounting position of the SPV because that might lead to inconsistent outcomes for market participants. And the solution that we've got now in the UK, it's simple and it's clear, and so it achieves what the UK securitization market needs to run smoothly. And actually, it's worth noting that the same is also true for covered bond LLPs. Thanks, Esther. Charles, can you give us some examples of the specific tax issues that can come up if structured finance vehicles are within Pillar 2? So, for example, if the UK hadn't managed to find a solution. Yeah, sure, I will. Um, I mean, first thing I'd say is Pillar 2 rules are really complicated and there are probably very many issues, but I'll give you my top three. And I think they're probably most people's top three. So number one is the one that Chris has already mentioned, which is the impact of swaps and other hedging arrangements. So swaps will be accounted for generally on a fair value through profit and loss basis. So that means as and when interest rates move, the value of the swaps go up and down dramatically. 
And that can give rise to large accounting profits or accounting losses. But the point here is that pillar two tries to tax accounting profits. So if you've got a period when the value of the swap goes up, then that can generate a large profit, which pillar two tries to tax. The second concerns cross-border arrangements within the consolidated group. If two members of that group are party to arrangements, so here, for example, you might have some junior notes held by a member of the consolidated group. Now, if those aren't on arm's length terms, then pillar two can tax the arrangements. So commonly, securitization structures under domestic law aren't subject to transfer pricing, which is great, but you can have the odd, odd outcome here that transfer pricing does apply under pillar two. I think finally, the SPV could be subject to a pillar two tax charge not based on its own profits, but based on the profits of other members of the group. Now, that may be for one of two reasons. It may be because the other member of the group isn't in a jurisdiction which has implemented Pillar 2, which means that the charge can be imposed on members of the group that are based in Pillar 2 jurisdiction. Or it might be that other member of the group has a liability but simply hasn't paid it, in which case our SPV could be required to pay it. So they're probably my top three, but as I say, that there are others. Okay, so there's quite a few issues to look out for there. And obviously we think we've got a fix in the UK, but not all jurisdictions are tackling this in the same way. Can you talk us through some of the other ways you've seen this being dealt with outside the UK? Well, so the UK is ahead of the game, which is great for UK securitizations. But of course, you do have structured finance vehicles based in other jurisdictions. And the obvious two I'm thinking of at least for European deals, are Luxembourg and Ireland. Now, there are some helpful elections in those jurisdictions and they allow an SPV to elect out of the potential exposure to liability for the profits of other members of the consolidated group. So that's that last point that I mentioned um, in response to your previous question. So there's the ability to elect out of that exposure. Aside from that, it really just becomes a question of consolidation or not. And on deal, what we have to do there is really diligence whether there's likely to be consolidation. Now, I have to say there's a very helpful exemption for so-called investment entities, and that's under IFRS 10 and other accounting standards. And what that means is certain types of investors, primarily funds and, and other private capital investors, are exempted from the consolidation requirements. So we do very, very commonly find that there isn't consolidation. However, if there is consolidation, it's just a question of checking the accounting to get some comfort that there won't be large accounting profits for pillar two to tax. Structuring solutions, so trying to find a way to mitigate any potential pillar two tax charge. And then finally, if you think there will be or may be one, it's scoping the size of the potential exposure getting comfortable that the deal can absorb that, that sort of costs. Thanks, Charles. So potentially there's a solution in terms of the tax liability. But Chris, I understand that paying the tax isn't even the biggest worry for most multinationals that are potentially in scope. No, that's right, Bryn. I mean, most UK multinationals actually expect to pay no or negligible additional tax as a result of Pillar 2. A much bigger concern for these companies is going to be the very significant compliance costs they will incur. For example, UK multinationals have estimated that their annual costs for complying with Pillar 2 will raise from £10,000 to £4.5 million. That's in addition to significant one-off implementation costs, which in some cases are expected to be as much as £15 million. Thanks, Chris. 
Those are some pretty big numbers and I can see why those compliance costs could be cause for concern for multinationals, particularly those who aren't expecting to pay much in the way of additional tax. Pillar 2 is unfortunately very complicated, as I think we've demonstrated, and we've only been able to scratch the surface in the time we have available. I'd like to thank all our speakers for joining me today, and also a big thank you to all those who are listening. If you're interested in hearing more about this topic, do get in touch with any of our speakers or your usual A&O contact. We also have more materials on Pillar 2 on the tax section of our website on alanovery.com. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.